0: I'm Joe Partavila, this is the Forbes Books Podcast, and there's so many things we can invest in these days. You've got cash and commodities, bonds and securities, investment funds, and of course the stock market. And investors looking for income generation, appreciation, and other benefits often check out real estate. But for some folks, multifamily properties might present the most accessible, relatable, and rewarding real estate investments available. And my guest this week is no stranger to that industry. His name is Mayor Freed. He is the CEO and co-founder of Lightwater Capital Investments, where his team identifies prime multifamily investment opportunities. Mayor, welcome to the Forbes Books Audio Studios. How are you?
1: Fantastic. Happy to be here.
0: I always like to start this like this because me being like this radio and TV nerd, my heroes growing up were like the David Letterman's of the world and, and folks who were on the radio. So you are this big hotshot in real estate investment and property management. Who was that person for you you know, growing up or maybe even closer to adult life where you're like, this is something I really love to do or want to do for the rest of my life.
1: So um, it's a great question. I haven't heard had that question a lot, but I'll I'll tell you, I think the answer is very, very simple and you'll be shocked. Michael Jordan.
0: Um, hold on a second. I'm trying to think Michael Jordan. Yeah, No,
1: not Alex Rodriguez, who got into real estate after the yeah. fact. Truth be told, nobody cares about real estate up until maybe they get into it. So growing up, there was no one in real estate. I didn't even know Donald Trump's name, but I didn't care about real estate at all growing up. Um, I was really opportunistic. I was always going for gold. Um, My goal was really just, I loved Michael Jordan and really just excellence. Like in all of sports, anything that I followed, I just loved the guy who was best. And I think that stuck with me. Of Whatever you're gonna do, make sure. You don't do it unless you're the best. And I would spend hours working on my jump shot. I would, you know, whatever I was doing, I would go like full throttle, you know, almost to insane levels. And it worked. It taught me discipline. It taught me different things. And it's really just, uh, I modeled a lot of these things after, you know, that was the guy who really taught me to be driven and to let nothing get in the way. And you're going to fail and fail and fail. But even after you've failed five times, you're going to succeed even since I started this uh, discussion with Forbes, one of the recurring themes that kept coming up was a matter of, I don't wanna come off as as telling people that I'm better than anyone else or I'm smarter. There's always people that are less smart, people that are smarter than you, and everywhere, every place in life, it's not as closely tied to intelligence level as people think, Mm. as much as it's a matter of persistence. And I think that the difference this might sound cliche, but I'm very proud of it. I, I, th- I think I thought of it. I think the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is just that the people who are extraordinary just pushed a little bit extra. That's really what makes them different. And that's really been a theme of you don't have to be the smartest, you don't have to be the tallest or the strongest or the richest at anything. But if you decide that you're going to work that much harder than everyone else, you can get it done. Mm. Everyone has their shortcomings and everyone looks at the people in the spotlight and says, "Oh, these people are born perfect. They're, you know, they're amazing. I can never get to that level." And it's true, you know. Listen to me. I'm never gonna be Celine Dion or Whitney Houston. I'm never. It's not gonna. Ha- I'm not gonna be you. Yeah. Um,
0: Lucky for you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he. Wait. Touché. So he was your excellent sort of guru, like someone you will look up to. So,
1: but tie in the excellence
0: into doing real estate.
1: So the goal wasn't always real estate. The goal was excellence. And in the, the culture that I come from, it's really when you're young, you do kids do what kids do, regardless of their background. So it was all about sports. Um, when friends of mine were going on trips and going to different kind of camps that had different focuses in the summer, our you know me and my immediate friends was basketball, basketball, basketball. There was. This camp that was specifically designated, it was a general camp, but it had a highlight of basketball. And what we were most proud of is that the first activity was usually leagues, which most of the time we played basketball, probably like 60, 70% of the time. The second activity was swimming, but they didn't make you go swimming. They would let you do whatever you want and we would play basketball. And the third activity of the day was a workshop where you can choose whatever kind of thing you want to do and we would play basketball during the workshop. And then night activity was basketball.
0: Did, did your parents know that this was going on in the camp?
1: No, no, no. <laughs> my parents, my parents were, they were thankful that I was out for two months. Um, but you know, it was really just a matter of uh, looking at things and developing a singular focus. And whatever you're focused on, be the best that you can. You're never going to be the best at everything, but find something that works for you. And as I started looking into uh, entering the workforce, it was really a matter of our culture promotes study to, up until a certain age. And I actually went through a four-year program where I became a, a, an ordained rabbi, um, which is not something that I advertise in, uh, in my bio. <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was a relatively rigorous program. Um, but once I decided to enter the workforce, it was really just opportunistic. And whatever I would fall into, whatever I would find, try to see if I can be the best in the world at that thing. And the goal right now, you know, I, I ended up through uh, my father-in-law is a commercial real estate attorney. He put me in touch with some people in the industry. I ended up in a small shop and I thought initially that that would just be a, a platform, a booster where I can get some experience and go into a bigger shop or something. And I stayed around in that shop for the next 10 years. We grew it into a bigger shop. I became a partner there and then we started a new company, me together, uh, with my partner. And that's where I am today. Wow. And so this is uh, Lightwater Capital Correct. Th- that you started. And- I started at Jay and Company, which was the management company. Right. And then over the past two years, we decided to branch out and start a new platform that's exclusively investing real estate investments and not the third party management.
0: Got it. And where did the entrepreneurial bug come from to branch out and do Lightwater? Because at that point before that, you were part of a company that existed. And, you know, you probably had a Leadership role, but not to the extent of being like a founder, CEO. So where did that come from? Where did the love for entrepreneurship come from?
1: Oh, so great question. So our business, my partner and I was really um, multifaceted. It was third party management, which brought in the fees, which paid the bills. And then on the side, we would look for investments. We would team up with one of our clients and buy a small property and do things like that. Um, and we would find a deal for a million dollars, two million dollars, five million dollars, up to ten million dollars. That was our biggest one. We were very proud of that. Over time, I started to look around at people that I knew in the community, and I noticed that there are people operating at a level of success that's not, maybe they're smarter than me, maybe they're much smarter than me, maybe they're much richer than me, but there's no reason why they should be able to do business at a level that's 100 times the size of mine. Wow. They, they might be twice as smart as me, they might be 10 times as smart as me, but they're not 100 times as smart as me. Like I met these guys, <laughs> and yeah, they're pretty bright, and they're pretty cool, and, and whatever it is but there's no reason why I should be stuck at a million to 5 million and people are out there doing two to $500 million wow. real estate deals. So we actually took a step back and I, I kept talking to my partner about like, there's something missing. There's something missing. We're stuck in this rut. We keep doing deals. We're making money. Like we weren't, we weren't complaining. Yeah. But I told him at one point, I said, we need to really say no to all of these deals, even though we can make some money because if we do it, we're not gonna learn something new. And fast forward 10 years from now, we will have done one to two of these deals every single year, let's say two to $4 million. And, and that's not bad, by the way. No, it doesn't year, sound bad, no. You know, $40 million worth of real yeah. estate, you don't own the whole 40 million, obviously, <laughs> you own the, a certain margin. But I said, if we take a year off of that and fo- focus on something else, perhaps we can get into an area we, where we can scale in a significant way and we did that. we took a step back. We said, we're not going to look at any of the comfortable things, anything local, we're going to go out and try to focus on something that's remote, where if we can do it in another state that's not you know 20, 30 minutes away from us, if we can do it something where, where it's a, a two-hour plane ride, if we could do it in Tennessee, we could do it in Georgia, we could do it in Florida, we can do it in Texas, we can do it in, uh, in, in South Carolina. Huh. And that would really just open up a whole new world. instead of being stuck in our immediate neighborhood we would really open up the entire country and the entire world to us.
0: What was the reaction like from either your partners, family, friends, people in your community when this sort of boldness started to come from you? Because at that point, like I said, you were doing pretty well. A couple million dollars. Right. That's, most people be like, yeah, I'll do that. Right, but right. you
1: wanted more. Did, were people like, right. Mayor, what's wrong with you? Just enjoy no, the no. ride. So the, so the couple million dollars, a lot of people, you know, people use it to you know, use these accolades to bolster their confidence and bolster their, you know, their resume and such, but – to put things in perspective, um, a $3 million, $5 million real estate deal split among four partners, if it does well, you could make a bunch of money. But if it's a little stagnant, which is the case with a lot of residential real estate in New York, we have some deals that we're flat on that we haven't made any money. Oh, okay. So, you know, if the margins are good, it can grow. But on a, a real estate deal that, let's say, we did really well on, we bought for a million dollars, we refinanced. A year later, for um, or two years later, for a million three, which was great. We refinanced again because it went up in value, the rents went up, and and the neighborhood was booming for a million six. That's great that we made $600,000 on it, but divided by four partners, that's $150,000, which again is a lot of money. But over the course of like five years, $150,000, it's not that much money. So it could look like millions and millions and millions, but it's a game of margins, and you're making a certain amount of money. And again, I'm not complaining, and I'm yeah. not. But people who who do ten or fifty million dollar real estate deals doesn't mean that they're a millionaire. They could <laughs> be, you know, they could be making a small piece, and the bigger the bigger the deal, the more partners, the less you own. It's really working on margins. So it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of, like, I'm dropping out of school because I'm only a millionaire and I want to be a billionaire. No, it's like, yeah, making a good living, making whatever it is, in between 150 dollars and $300,000 a year, which is great, which we're not complaining about. Uh, my kids go to private school and that costs me about 60 to 80 grand a year, which... So you're working for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's all for them. Um, but it was really just a sense of, look at the success that other people are achieving and... It's one thing that for people to do something novel and different, I'm not going to say that I can open up a Facebook and they're doing a trillion times more than me, obviously, but this is the same business. This is the same business scaled a hundredfold. So we were really good at our business. We made a lot of money for our clients. Why? There might be a, a significant gap between me and the next guy who's a lot more successful but the gap is not a hundredfold. So we have to figure out and figure out a way if we can cross that bridge.
0: So without getting too much into the minutiae of real estate, what is the separator between what you were doing in your previous company where you were dealing with a, you know, like you said, a couple million to the folks who are a hundredfold, like hundreds of millions of dollars? Is there something like a big stark
1: thing that separates the two? So there is and there isn't. There is because it's really a trust factor of It's one thing for me to find a local guy to trust me with $200,000. And it's another thing for someone who's doing, let's say, a a $150 million real estate deal to find people who trust him with $40 million or $50 million. Mm -hmm. Right? it's a different level. It's a different caliber of people that come with a different caliber of scrutiny and a different caliber of trust. So there are profound differences. And until you've done it, people won't trust that you've done it. So it's kind of a circular It's a vicious circle. It just comes back around. Yeah. So nobody wants to trust you with their money because you haven't done it before and you can't do it unless someone trusts you with their money. So you want to try to grow slowly, but the fundamentals are the same. So if you can pin them down, there was a big difference between what we were doing locally, which is buying assets that were undervalued and just doing what we can to raise the rents and, and sell them further versus developing a model that you can really scale to hundreds and hundreds of apartments at a time where there are communities that are built on very, again, narrow margins. But if you have the fundamentals in place, if you could do it with 100 units, you could do it with 1,000 units. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've really seen our business grow exponentially. Um, 15 months ago, we bought our first deal under light- Lightwater Capital for $11 million. Two weeks ago, we closed our seventh deal for $42 million. So that's you know, quadruple. Wow. And we, that wasn't the only deal we closed that month. Now, we hadn't closed more than two deals in any given year over the previous seven years. And then all of a sudden in one year, we closed seven deals. Wow. So it was great. I really don't, I'm, I'm, I'm keen. I was trying to keep some of the, the metrics out because uh, part of my focus over here in, in this uh, process is really to explain to audiences how this is doable independent of the metrics. A lot of people earn credibility by just throwing out big numbers, yeah. but big numbers can be manipulated. And you could be a, a, you know, a percentage of a percentage of a percentage of a partner and take credit for, oh yeah, my company did a billion dollar yeah. deal and what did you do? Well, I picked up the coffee. Yeah. Right? I got ten thousand dollars. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, so so I I don't want any of these messages to be conceived as, oh, this guy, you know, this must work because look at so much money. The money can be manipulated, a lot of the things could be manipulated, but it's a lot more doable than people think. It just takes You know, it takes the time and it takes the effort. And again, going back to that point, you know, in my mind, what I've seen from people, again, who are exorbitantly more wealthy than I can ever dream of being, they're not a hundred or a million times as smart as you and I, right? They're passionate. They're, you know, they deserve all the props in the world, but they just pushed a little bit farther.
0: And it's almost like the Hamilton thing. They get, they're able to get into the room where it happens, and you were not able to get into that room early absolutely, on. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And that happens over time. Like yeah. I, I don't want it to come off seeing like, oh, there's this elite society and only yeah. they can make money. It is it is a trust factor. So it's yeah, it's a capitalistic society, but it's really a matter of, can I get my neighbor or my friend to trust me with their money? If I can't, because A, either I'm not intelligent enough or I'm not experienced enough or I don't sound like I know what I'm talking about, then yeah, then I can't get into that room. But getting into that room, there are no big uh, you know, big scary ghosts precluding you from that room. It's really just a matter of, have you developed the expertise and the, the ability to manage this kind of money? Can you get you know, a friend, whoever it is, or an acquaintance to say, I trust this guy with a million dollars and here's a check, and then get 10 guys to do that and now right. go out and buy a $30 million deal because you have $10 million worth of equity? Wow.
0: Uh, and so the work you're doing at Lightwater is multifamily real estate, which is in uh, regular parlance apartment buildings. Correct. Right?
1: Correct. Or complexes, not necessarily buildings, but yeah. Okay.
0: And from what I understand, Lightwater, and you mentioned sort of like the fact that you weren't married to having to be in the New York metro area. You, I think right now a lot of your early investments are in Georgia. Correct. So what is it about Georgia that's sort of that ripened fruit <laughs> for you to pick off the
1: tree? Um, So it's interesting. We actually spent, once we committed to doing this kind of thing, we brought in an intern and things weren't really going so well. And then we brought in someone full time to just hit the pavement and and try to find opportunities. And to us, it was really just about simple math. If you try enough times, something's going to break at some point. And we did not find Georgia right away. We did not find opportunities in Atlanta. We actually started in Jacksonville and we spent... Three, four, five months, we almost signed the contract on a deal in Jacksonville. When we came down for the third inspection, uh, we got the manager to open a door that was locked on our previous Uh-oh. two inspections, and then we found that it, would, it had been sitting in six inches of water Ooh. for about a year. I
0: thought you were going to say there are like 12 dead bodies in there. No, but I- <laughs> no, not,
1: not to, but in real estate terms, it's not so different. Um, we asked the contractor, so how much does this cost to fix? And he said- I can't even give you a number because the foundation is sitting on concrete oh, and I don't know how warped and how corroded the pipes are. It could cost you could cost you $500,000, it could cost you $5 million oh to replace, to, to repair this. And that was a deal that we thought we had to, that We thought that was gonna be the first deal and then we nixed it. We spent months there. We went from Jacksonville to focusing on Alabama. We actually looked at a few deals very, very seriously, a few opportunities. None of these things worked out. And finally we got our first break. Our first we were so excited. Our first break was a property in Atlanta that was below market value. It was distressed. It was 50% empty. It was a bunch of the buildings were burnt out. And we were so excited because we ran the numbers and it was great. We lined up all the debt, the mortgage for the building. We lined up all the equity from different partners. And our senior partner, who's an experienced real estate guy, been in the business 40 plus years, also out of New York, was also trying to break in into a new market. He said some very uh, prescient words. I love you guys. I'm all in. This seems like a great opportunity. So you can count me in with one caveat. There's this thing going on in China that some people are saying might turn the world upside down. I don't really know what it is, but so long as that... Doesn't literally turn the world upside down. I'm in with you guys. And we said, yeah, just, just wait for the news cycle to turn and pass. And, and this was in February 2020. Oof. My COVID experience was a thousand times worse because I thought I was going broke at the same time. <laughs> you know, while the world was collapsing, I was also losing my whole life savings and everything. So it was a nightmare. It was terrible. Ironically, had we been able to pull off this deal, that particular deal literally tripled in value since then. Wow. Had we been able to find a bank to lend on it and actually do it, even if we would have lost some money on the front end, it, we were under contract for, I think, $16 million, which means that we needed to come up with about $7 million. We could have sold that property today. I think it's going on the market for like $27 million, <laughs> which means that our $7 million worth of equity wouldn't just double. Our $7 million in the $16 million deal, if you sell it for $11 million more— So it's seven plus 11, right? That would have been $18 $18 million. So it would have been literally almost triple in a year. Wow. So we could have made a ton of money. Timing was off and we lost an arm and a leg, but we were resilient and we picked back up right after that. And and then we started uh, going on a little bit of a tear.
0: And that's sort of, that was the stepping stone, even though it didn't work out. But that's sort of when you started really working in the Georgia area, correct? Right, right. So that was our
1: first deal that we looked at. And not the first deal that we looked at, but the first deal that we really took seriously in Atlanta. And then we got familiar with the neighborhood. And off of there, we found another deal to look at. And another one and another one. And we bid and bid and lost different bids and back and forth. And eventually, we landed something, which we actually lost initially. Uh, We were competing on a certain deal for... We thought it made sense at ten and a half million. We were ready to push all the way up to ten point eight million, and we we thought we had won. And the broker came back and said that the that the seller has another offer at ten point eight, same offer, but they know the other guys and they don't know you, so they're going to go with them. And I decided at that time, like, oh man, like back to the drawing board. And my associate who I had hired said, one second, I know we were ready to push to ten point eight. But we're in such a tough spot, why don't we just move up the number a little bit? And we offered $11 million, which was like, this was taking a risk. We weren't sure, is this the right play? Long story short, we closed that deal in September of 2020. We actually have a firm offer right now on the table. We did not take it to market. I don't even know if we're taking the offer, but we have an offer in place right now for that same deal for $17 million. So that deal worked out pretty well. Wow! Now, it doesn't mean that I'm walking home with six million dollars no. I would love that right most yeah. of the money goes to the investors me which too. is great you got me
0: <laughs> which,
1: which is great you make people money it's great so that that's how you're in trust it wasn't a huge deal you know to a lot of people it'll sound like a lot of money we had to put together three and a half million dollars worth of equity it was definitely difficult for us at the time since then we've raised a lot more money than that but it was a phenomenal stepping stone. And when you can show your investors how you make them money and how the, it, how it's just math and it makes sense and the business model is there, it speaks volumes and it and it earns trust. Wow.
0: And you, know, you once said that do your research, find smart people to help you in the industry, surround yourself with the right people and work harder than everyone else by triple. That
1: sort of like uh, encapsulates a lot we've been talking about today, right? Yeah, yeah. So I know the grammar is a little off on whatever I, it was that I wrote <laughs> there. But yeah, it's really just a matter of nobody was born perfect, as much or as little as you think of yourself, you're not that much better than other people, and you're not that much worse. People are pretty competent, and some people are celebrated as super-duper geniuses, and most of them are not as smart as made out to be, and most of the people on the other side of the spectrum are also not as dumb as they're made out to be. So we just really felt like it's a numbers game, if you put in the hard work, if you have a proper foundation, obviously there are things where people lose their pants right and left. Not everyone in real estate makes money. It's a risk, like all investments in the world are risks, but it's it's a lot easier to understand. And to me, what I've told friends of mine, I don't really understand the stock market. A lot of people are day trading and they're doing, mm. yeah, Bitcoin, no Bitcoin, all these different things. IBM, I'm dating myself with yeah. IBM. <laughs> Apple, Google, Facebook, yeah, all these companies are making money, but Do you know the day-to-day in Facebook who they hired, who they didn't hire, what contracts they won or lost, or why they are going to make money? You know how they performed the past year past five years, and it's helpful. But if I look at an apartment complex, I know how much every tenant is paying in rent. I know how much they're paying for payroll. How much is their taxes? How much is their insurance? How much they can expect in repair costs? It's pretty predictable. And I know all the working pieces, and I could present all of those variables so that if you want to invest with me, I can't guarantee anything, but I could explain to you on every single level what can go right and what can go wrong. And obviously, we do learn new things every day, but it's something that you can understand. And I think people are a lot more comfortable investing in something they understand versus investing on some brand name that, yeah, they did well, but all companies that do well eventually don't do well, like Sears, Companies become dinosaurs, right and left. Yeah. So.
0: Well, it's like that old business book, Good to Great, that came out a few years ago. If you look at it, a lot of those good to great companies are not no longer in existence. Exactly. So exactly. You exactly. can only be great for so long. You so, know?
1: so, I actually love that book. I heard somebody quote it um, in a lecture I was listening to, and I was, I was profoundly moved that good is the enemy of great. Right.
0: Yeah, I remember like when I first read it, it was like Circuit City, really. They're not. <laughs> this doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, so yeah. they could have been that great, but right. obviously in the context of when the book came out. But listen, I'm looking forward to it because you plan on hopefully writing your
1: book, right? Uh, that's the hope. There's two particular things that we're looking to target and looking to teach in the book, and that is number one for the passive investor, somebody like yourself who saved up a couple of bucks, whether it's fifty thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. And they don't want to put it in the stock market because that's erratic. It goes up and down, and and we don't really know. It has a mind of its own. So they want to put it in something they understand. And a lot of people do have access to different real estate investments. But if I send you a pro forma, an underwriting model that I've put together, it's Chinese to you. And it's very easy for me to manipulate it. Like I could say it to, I, I could make it do what I want it to do, regardless of the truth behind it. So one of the things that I want to do in the book is really explain some of the moving parts behind the model, some of the interactions between different variables that really make or break the deal so that if a person like yourself is looking at an opportunity to invest, they don't just look at the the model and say, well, this is Chinese, do I trust the guy, do I not? Which is typically how people look at these investments. They have a few basic bullet points. They feel comfortable enough to say, this looks on, this looks off. They feel that much more educated where they can make smart decisions. And I'm not, gonna, you know, I'm not gonna express that some investments are better than others. Investments are all different and risk reward always goes hand in hand. But if people can feel educated and feel comfortable to say, I'm not gonna invest in this deal because this guy is expecting to buy at a certain cap and sell at a certain cap and he's not incorporating the current fluctuations of interest rates and it's not really viable for that variable alone. You know, People will be equipped with different information that can make them comfortable in making smart decisions on where to invest. Some people wanna buy older real estate because it's cheaper and it has less of a chance of going down in value. Other people wanna buy brand new real estate because it doesn't need as much maintenance. So you're not gonna have a, a boiler break or, or, you know, or a roof leak or something like that. So there's different variables at play and I just feel that it, it can help a lot of people if they just have a basic education not of the dry numbers of you know the rate of return and and all that kind of stuff that you can find in a hundred other books out there but from an industry insider who says you know this is financial engineering versus this is you know something that really really is stable and all the arguments behind it are justified so if we can get people to be just a little educated they could be so much smarter and then make proper decisions in choosing who and where to invest with. That's goal number one. Goal number two is a lot of people out there, actually, it's funny, this morning, uh, my Uber driver, I asked him about the pricing of houses and the real estate prices in the neighborhood. And he told me that he actually bought a a single family house as an investment, a real estate investment. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. Like you scraped together enough money, you bought a house, you're renting it out. Uh, There's a lot of people out there, they see for sale signs go up they think that real estate is for the rich and famous. And it's just, the, the gap between me and buying a piece of real estate is just, it's light years apart. And one of the things that I would like to do is give people enough of an education where they can make an analysis, a certain, a even a, an elementary analysis to see if the, if the building around the corner from where they live, if that's a good value. And give them the, the pieces to start because in many businesses, going from zero to one is a lot harder than going from one to a thousand. Mm. So if we can equip people with the information of, you know, I'm not clueless. I don't know why this building, you know, this building went up for sale around the corner, three, three family house. Is it worth a million? Is it worth two million? Is it worth 10 million? What are the variables at play? Can I run my own analysis and say, hey, this is local. You know, the big guys are not looking at it because it's in a secondary city. It's relatively small, but it, for me, it's a lot of money. Maybe I should put together my uncle and my brother-in-law and, you know, different people in my family. Maybe we could buy it and collectively we can make money because we have enough information. So it's really a twofold purpose for this book of arming the passive investor with enough information so that they can see through the presentations and, and, you know, the reality behind it. And also for the person who wants to maybe passively start a side business or even start a primary business where they're understanding the world of real estate and that it's not so far-fetched for them to get involved and really build something on their own.
0: Hmm. His name is Mayor Freed. He's a co-founder and CEO of Lightwater Capital Investments. Mayor, I can't re- wait for the book, and who knows? You convinced me. I might w- get into real estate. You know, Like you said, anybody could do it, right?
1: Anybody can do it.
0: All right. Awesome. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, and that's it for this episode of the Forbes Books Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get new shows when they drop. Also, if you have a minute, I would love if you left us a review so more amazing entrepreneurs like yourself can discover the show. And please don't forget the golden rule and treat others as you want to be treated. Thanks for listening. Until next time, adios.